You're listening to the Flab Podcast. For those of us who haven't met yet, I'm Jen. I am, ironically enough, a wellness industry marketer who has recovered from ED. I'm a mom of two, and in my very limited spare time, I also write a newsletter called Flab, and it's all about boosting your self-perception and your body image. And on this show, I'll talk about it with you. So today's episode breaks down the concept called living your questions. It's this idea that questions, not answers, are the maps we need to find real wellness. We'll also take a closer look at the discussion happening around the recent AAP guidelines for treatment of obesity in kids. Let's dive in. Okay, show of hands, who managed to make it through January, quote unquote, wellness month without succumbing to all of the diet culture and new year, new you pressure and marketing out there? Anyone? Well, if you did, my hat's off to you. My have no resolutions plan went way off track. Um, Even though I was really, really intentional and aware that this would be a risky time for me, this New Year season would be, you know, challenging and crowded, um, given my history with ED, um, I still wasn't safe. I had done a lot of prep. I had done a lot of uh, meditation and education and safeguarding of my, you know, social feeds, etc., just to make sure that I wouldn't be exposed or limitedly exposed to all of this. But um, alas, my 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 good intentions did not work. Um, Wellness Month came fast and hit me with a ton of marketing that I wasn't expecting to fall for, um, like skincare that was promising to, you know, heal my soul, um, and just pricey workouts um, led by, you know, women in bodies that resemble nothing like mine, um, you know, that all kind of promised that I'd get back to a pre-baby shape and, you know, change, essentially change my body. Um, And it looked and felt like wellness at first, but for someone like me who has recovered from ED, this was a minefield. And Luckily, I was able to catch myself quick enough and realize like I was falling into kind of old patterns of, you know, making bad decisions that weren't beneficial to my health. And I was able to recognize it quickly because I, because I've done as much work on my recovery as I have. Um, and I was able to just like slowly back away from all of the wellness that I had been lured into in the last month before things got really out of control. But it left me wondering, like, why after all of these years, I mean, I am, I, I don't know the exact time, but I'm definitely over five, probably close to 10 years recovered from ED. Like, why do I still fall for these traps knowing everything I know now? You know, I know the wellness industry has become the new guise of the diet industry. I call myself a body image advocate, but how can I be that if I still sometimes slip and kind of fall for this system of beliefs that privileges smaller bodies and stigmatizes larger ones? What do I do with the fact that 
in my subconscious psyche, there are moments when I see an ad for, you know, let's say a workout or, you know, a supplement or something like that. And there's a part of me that still speaks and says, like, I really want to try that because I really want to be thin. And this is where the practice of living the questions comes in. So I learned about this quest- this concept from Krista Tippett. She's the host of On Being. She says, questions may be the closest thing we have to maps and guides in a world that is without maps and guides. Tippett actually had the opportunity to go to India and meet with the Dalai Lama. And while she was there, she had a chance to ask the Dalai Lama one question. Like, whoa, what an incredible opportunity. But what was interesting about this and and her time there is that she found that the work she and her peers that were with her on this journey, the work that they did collectively to hone their questions and come up with this one substantial, deep, meaningful question that they presented each to the Dalai Lama was more insightful, rewarding, guiding, and telling than any answer they expected to receive from the Dalai Lama. And they were asking questions that really had no answer, but the work that they did to shape those questions was what was transformative. So with that... um, you know, one of the things that she synthesizes this experience as is like one of the outcomes that she she realized from this experience was that asking quality questions and getting curious is how discovery and breakthroughs happen. Our culture loves answers. So I really found it challenging to come up with a question to live. But here's how I did it. And I encourage you to come up with a question for yourself to live this year too. So first thing is first, push yourself to pause and revel in the uncomfortable chaos that is not knowing. This is a skill we need to relearn. This is probably like one of my biggest things I'm working on in my professional life is pausing when I don't know an answer and not rushing to you know, ask the question that's being asked on the surface and to really think about like what's the deeper question beneath it and not answering it right away until I have a full thought out answer. Um, Because it is uncomfortable to, you know, especially as a, you know, a woman, a mom coming back from maternity leave, like I want to prove myself. I want people to know that I know what I'm talking about and I want to do that by answering everybody's questions and showing them what I know but the reality is it's a skill and you know a a higher level of being when we're able to pause and revel in a question and challenge some of the things that might come up to us come up for us as things we don't know and um, take that into our response before we just immediately respond Um, The next thing to consider when you're kind of figuring out what your question is, this, this question, this thing that you would take to, you know, the Dalai Lama should you have the chance, um, is to push yourself to ask higher quality questions. Tippett says, questions elicit answers in their likeness. Answers, 
answers will rise or fall to the level of questions they meet. So again, kind of like one of my first questions after realizing I went off the rails of, you know, my plan to stay away from diet culture in January, like my kind of berating question that I asked myself was like, why do I care so much about being thin? Like, why is that so important to me? I know that's stupid. Why do I care about that? And it's important to remember that it's really hard to respond to a negative question or a simple question like, why do I want to be thin with anything other than a negative or simple answer? But the opposite is also true. If we ask ourselves a deeper question, a more expansive question, we'll get a deeper and more expansive answer. The next thing Tippett suggests is to consider what we're naturally drawn to um, and dig into that. Go beyond the surface. If you come up empty, go deeper until you hit water. So, you know, go towards what you're gravitating towards. What are the questions that are rolling around in your mind? What are the things that you naturally want to understand better and then go beyond that? And finally, write down your initial question and then keep going deeper. So what I did is I took out a notebook and I wrote down like my first question, which was like very, I knew superficial, like why do I care about being thin? Um, But then I kept going and like five, 10, 20 questions down my list. I think I came to 14 questions total. I found a question that was framed in a very open and expansive way that I could get curious about for an entire year Um, and it's high enough quality that should I get the chance to meet the Dalai Lama this year or Lizzo or whoever, um, you know, whatever, whoever your guru of choice is, um, is a question that I would feel proud to ask them. Um, So ultimately, the question I landed on for, for me this year was this idea of How can I give myself permission to live a well life without buying into the belief that I need to be fixed or changed before I can receive it? So how can I live this wellness life that I used to think only was achievable to me after I, you know, changed the shape of my body or my skincare routine or, you know, whatever, a number of other things. How can I get that life without needing to change something about myself to enjoy it. So this radical idea that we're not broken, that we don't need to be fixed, is informed in part by Holly Whitaker's approach to rethinking how women should be approaching sobriety differently than men. She explains that we women don't need to be told we're powerless, as a typically will preach, because women already feel like that. Um, you know, a lot of us already feel like we're powerless. Um, and the same, I think, can be said for women who battle ED and negative self-perception when we're seeking out wellness. We don't need to be beat over the head with the message that we're broken and that, you know, X, Y, and Z wellness product can fix us. We need to be told that we deserve real wellness, things like connection, joy, purpose, comfort, balance, creativity without caveats. 
without being told that we need to change our routine, our appearance, our diet, and most importantly, the size of our bodies to enjoy those real wellness concepts. These are all ideas I've contemplated as I live my question, which has no clear answer today. But as the German poet Rainer Maria Rilke suggests, perhaps by living the question now, someday far in the future, I will gradually, without even noticing it, live my way into the answer. The last thing I want to talk about are the new American Academy of Pediatric Guidelines. I am certainly no expert on this topic, and I'm only going to touch on the topic at a very high level, specifically through the lens of ED and my concerns. You know, I have a lot of concerns with these guidelines, but specifically because I have experienced ED, I want to talk about what these guidelines brought up in me. And most importantly, um, I want to direct you to a few great sources. Um, Virginia Soul Smith, she writes the Burnt Toast newsletter. Um, if you want to dive in, she's done some great work on covering this topic. She even wrote an op-ed for the New York Times. There's also Reagan Chastain. Um, she writes um, a substack called Weight in Healthcare. And also Alexis Conison, she's a clinical psychologist and author of the the Diet Free Revolution. Um, so those are just three people, but there is a lot of great um, activists who are coming out, and you know there are community members who are educating the general pop on you know, what these guidelines do to stigmatize both people living in larger bodies and people who, you know, may be at risk for developing an eating disorder. Um, So yeah, here's the gist of what's happening. So this past January, the American Academy of Pediatrics released its first comprehensive guidelines for evaluating and treating um, children and adolescents with quote-unquote obesity, which again is crazy because it's a diagnosis that's given to people just based on their weight and body size and not based on like any other underlying health conditions. Um, so this new guideline advises that healthcare providers um, should refer children as young as two years old to intensive health behavior and lifestyle treatment programs if they have a body mass index in the overweight or obese range. So I just want to pause there for a second and put this into context. I'm not a child, but my BMI puts me in the overweight category. So theoretically, if I was a kid, these guidelines would apply to me. My parent would have to make a decision as to whether or not I should be put into um, intensive health behavior and lifestyle treatment. And um, yeah, these these are conversations that trusted adults would be having with me as young as two. And it really puts into perspective how 
irresponsible it is to base these guidelines on something like BMI, which we all know and have been talking about for years, is a poor measure of health. And it's especially a terrible metric in kids since it doesn't consider muscle mass or level of development um, within puberty, um, all of which could influence body composition. So unfortunately, it gets worse, these guidelines. So as young as two, you can be put into this quote-unquote intensive health behavior and lifestyle treatment. But if you're 12, things get much worse because once you're 12 and you've been assigned a BMI, again, no other health conditions, but a BMI that's considered obese, doctors are now encouraged to prescribe weight loss medications um, and offer children over 13 with severe obesity to referral for bariatric surgery, which is irreversible. It cannot be changed. Again, it's an irreversible surgery that is um, being elected for a minor. And I won't get into, you know, all the ancillary conversations around that as well, but it's an irreversible surgery that doctors are suggesting, you know, practitioners refer patients to simply based on their BMI and not any other health conditions. Um, And the other option again was weight loss medications, which are something that they would need to take, you know, their entire life to see the, you know, see the results continue of of weight loss or to, you know, maintain a specific weight. And they are, they carry a lot of side effects, um, many of which actually the side effects kind of look like an eating disorder. Um, So, you know, like I said, things get a lot worse for these kids that are in this like pubescent age of 12, 13, um, and who are, you know, been assigned an obese BMI by their doctor. So as Virginia Soul Smith says in her op-ed in the New York Times, the biggest problem here with these guidelines is that, quote, they are rooted in a premise that should have been rejected long ago, that weight loss is the best path to health and happiness. Think about that. Why are we assuming that all of these people need to lose weight to be happy or to be healthy? Did we even determine that they were unhealthy or did we just look at their body size and BMI? So I, of course, as someone who has suffered from an eating disorder around this time of, you know, 13, you know, early, you know, early preteen age, I can't see a world where doctors and trusted adults telling our kids that there's a certain weight that they should be falling into ends well for these kids. I know what it feels like to chase a number on a scale. We collectively know, science tells us, the research tells us that diets can raise kids' risks for eating disorders. There was a three-year study on almost 2,000 kids, and it found that teenage girls who dieted moderately, only moderately, there was a, a case for teenagers who dieted extremely, but let's talk about the kids who dieted moderately. They were five times more likely to develop an eating disorder 
than their non-dieting peers. So this guideline is suggesting parents start intensive health behavior and lifestyle treatment as young as two. Imagine what that might do to this generation's self-perception. There is significant research that's even suggesting that if the AAP guidelines are followed, that they will create a generation of kids struggling with eating disorders starting as early as two. That is terrifying. Virginia also shared a tweet in one of her posts um, from a friend and eating disorder therapist, Shira Rosenbluth. She shared, I was put on a diet at age 10 in the name of health. The result was a seeming the result of that seemingly benign diet was a 20-year eating disorder that almost killed me. Pushing weight loss on kids is the opposite of health. And I couldn't agree more. So it does, I I hate to be a Debbie Downer, but it actually gets worse, right? So it's like, okay, we have these really insane guidelines and the study makes a really outrageous claim to support these guidelines. They claim that their evidence-based pediatric treatment, obesity treatment, reduces the risk for disordered eating. How? How is that possible? This kind of goes back to like living the question, but like my, like I don't see how that anyone could make that claim. Um, And a lot of people um, who kind of live in this world and who um, are certainly more knowledgeable than me and, you know, my intuition that just says that feels very inaccurate. But um, luckily we have people like researcher um, Reagan Chastain um, and clinical psychologist um, Alexis Conison um, who address the issues with the research um, that informed this claim. And they've written numbers of essays and in-depth um exposés that reveal the problems with this claim and why this claim should be retracted. Um, Things ranging from conflicts of interest of the people who helped fund the study, the lack of ED specialists involved in um, overseeing and writing the study and commenting on the study, um, and the omission of relevant eating disorder Uh, related data in the study. And there's a ton more. So if you want to kind of see exactly point by point on why this claim is, you know, doesn't stand up and doesn't hold up to a pressure test, definitely head over to their channels or sub stacks, um, their Twitter accounts to check those out. Um, And as you'd expect, luckily, um, or thankfully, um, the top eating disorder organizations have come out unequivocally against these guidelines and have requested that the paper be considered for retraction. And since I'm still kind of finding my words on this topic, and, you know, it's it's a very um, heavy and scientific-driven conversation, I want to borrow some words um, that really summed up kind of how I felt about this, um, this claim and these guidelines from Reagan Chastain. She said, 
Shame on the AAP for bending themselves and the data into pretzels to defend and recommend a dangerous and failed weight loss paradigm to children as young as two years old. So you might be feeling like the body positivity movement is moving in the wrong direction after hearing all of that, and that's totally valid. Um, And I'd still like to leave you with one sliver of hope because it's just like ingrained in me to be positive, right or wrong, but that's just how I operate. Um, But this sliver of hope that, you know, again, I picked up from an issue of Burnt Toast. Um, It's from Aubrey Gordon. She's a fat activist who frames the pushback um, to Virginia Soul Smith like this. She says, we're making progress, and that means the fight is intensifying. I love that. Thanks so much for taking the time to ponder these important topics with me. I'm wishing you lots of peace and lots of love.